Today we finish a series, and that series is entitled Winsome. Now, in some ways, this is just kicking off this thought or this mindset because we've got an entire year um, planned in which we're going to be coming back to this subject over and over again. What is this subject? Well, we started off calling it Mission. It's Winsome right now. When we get to the Joshua series, you're going to see we're going to preach through the book of Joshua. You're going to see how this is a direct connection for the kingdom of God that is advancing. We'll hit it again immediately after Easter on a quick three-week series. It'll be a whole church-wide series. And we're going to keep coming back to it in various ways. And I, I promise you this, you're not going to get sick of it because there's so much to talk about. And so in this series right here, all we wanted to do is say, what does it look like for the church in a winsome way to go after the, the, the world that would not consider themselves to be followers of Jesus? How do we, in an attractive, compelling, with character way, go on the love offensive, meaning we're taking the initiative in which we want to go and to minister to the needs of other people? We've been looking at some stories all along. We looked at the difference between Peter and Paul and how they went about their various ministries to a prepared and unprepared audience. We Looked at more specifically at some other stories, but we said this along the way. Change is inevitable, but change can be fruitful. We can resist change and be frustrated with the world's changing ways, or we can embrace change and rest in God's unchanging purposes. I don't know if you know the stories of both Blockbuster and Kodak, but two industries leading the way, absolutely leading the way in what it is that they were doing. They're not even in existence anymore. Why? because they refused to change. I'd love to tell you the entire story on both of those. We became fascinated, Judith and I did, with, uh, with the Kodak story on one particular trip, and we both just doing our phones, and I think somebody else was driving while we were doing our phones, and researched it when we got back. It's a fascinating look, both Blockbuster and Kodak. Great companies, and it's not because the field that they were in was not going to be productive. They refused to change and to meet the needs of uh, the ways in which people were consuming things um, in there. So uh, we can embrace change, and then we can rest, though, in God's unchanging purposes. We must change our methods without changing the message. The passage that's been the central passage that's been uh, the thread, if you will, that's woven its way through it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's Paul, he says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Jesus is still the ultimate solution to every person's ultimate problem. Now this morning, set it up this way. Most of us tend to think that our story is just our story. You may be one that says, I don't have an exciting testimony. My testimony is quite boring. 
Many of us in this room cannot remember a time in which we actually started walking with the Lord because we heard the gospel message early and often from our parents. It was undergirded by a school that we may have gone to. It was certainly fortified in our minds uh, by, by a church that preached it week in and week out. And so we had multiple ways in which we were getting the inputs of the gospel message. And we cannot recall a time in which we decided, I'm going to walk with the Lord. We just grew up walking with the Lord. And that is not my story. I have a very clear season of life where I know I made a conscious decision to walk away from the Lord because my parents did a great job of teaching me you cannot go halvesies on this. You cannot have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot over here in the kingdom of the world. The intention of your heart is either I'm all in or I'm all out. So in the sixth grade, I made a conscious decision, said I'm going to be all out. And I'm still going to be respectful to my mom and dad. Because I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. They were always loving, kind, compassionate. Of course, they were messed up, just like you, just like me. Of course, they made mistakes along the way, but they were great parents. And so I wanted to be honorable to them. But my sin reached a point where it was no longer able to be hidden from anyone. And it was at the end of my freshman year of college that I remember the Lord, in a very powerful way, using an atheist philosophy professor to hammer away at everything that had to do with religion. It was in that class, during that span of time, I cannot give you an hour, I cannot give you a minute, I cannot give you even a specific day. It was sometime in that spring quarter of 1989 that I began to walk with the Lord. And the reason I began walking with the Lord was because I could not kick the habit of alcohol with every fiber of my being trying so hard to work the system in AA, which is a phenomenal system. I highly endorse it to anyone who is struggling with alcohol. I worked the program and still could not find freedom. And yet when I began to walk with Jesus, something happened internally that I can't take credit for. The desires in my heart changed. It was a supernatural thing. It was God who was changing me from the inside and then the outside slowly began to take shape. And my life began to look different. Some of you say, now see, that's an exciting story. That's a story worth hearing. What I'm here to tell you is my story is not my story. It's actually his story. And to the degree that we believe our story is his story, to that degree we believe that we need God. If my perception is my story is so boring just because I really haven't needed God much over the years, it's a pretty good indication that I don't think I'm in a position where I actually need God to help me in this lifetime. I may need him as a little boost but the reality is I need Jesus, David, I need Jesus just as much today in November of 2023 as much as I did in the spring of 1989. And although it's not alcohol any longer, it's a whole laundry list of other sins that if I am not walking with Jesus, I promise you it's just a matter of time before not only will I disappoint you, I will hurt you and I will hate it. And I wish it wasn't true of me. But for this, I need Jesus. 
Can I ask you, what do you need Jesus for? Is he just a boost in your life? Is he just someone to help you get past a few other little hurdles? Or do you view yourself as completely incapable of making yourself right with God, completely capable of wrecking your family, your work, your neighborhood, et cetera, that unless God intervenes, you are going to jack things up? To whatever degree you need, you believe you need Jesus, to that degree you will believe that your story is his story. Many of us think our story is just our story. But God in his wisdom has decided to make your story simply a part of his story. So if we can start thinking of it in, the, in that light, I think we will have a different motivation for sharing with others what it is that God has done in our lives. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 26 through 39. I'm going to summarize some things previous to that, but in honor of God's word, if you're physically capable, would you stand as we read from Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. When they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, when Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And for a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out. I won't do it, but I should be shouting right now. He cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he, that is Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him uh, not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to see Jesus and found the man from whom the, the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Maybe seated. Now, it shows this particular passage. There are many others that we could choose, but chose this particular one because it so clearly illustrates, I think, what is not a formula, rather, for us to think about, but what for us is 
a skeleton to think about. When it comes to think about how is it that God desires his people to share his story with others, how should we go about this process? And I think we'll see this pattern over and over and over and over again through the scriptures. Again, please hear me. I want to emphasize this is not a formula that when put into practice is a guarantee that someone's going to fall on their knees, repent of their sins right there on the spot, ask Jesus to come into their life and declare that you are the greatest evangelist to ever live. This is just a pattern. It's something we ought to typically think about. One theologian says that there are seven characteristics of demon possession in the Gospels. Number one, there's a disregard for personal dignity and nakedness. Number two, there is social isolation. Number three, a retreat to basic shelter. Number four, demonic recognition of Jesus' divinity. Number five, demonic control of speech. Number six, shouting. And number seven, extraordinary strength. That is typical of demonic possession in the New Testament. What it tells us about this particular man is that this man, after Jesus had stepped out on the land, met him. In other words, Jesus went into the territory where this man was residing. I just wonder how often people went into the territory where this man resided. I wonder how many folks had the courage and the faith and the compassion to enter into a place where someone who was wreaking havoc on life resided. Jesus steps on the land and he's met there by this man as a demon. Now, immediately the demon, I'm sorry, a man who is possessed by demons, and immediately at least one of the demons inside of him recognizes Jesus. But look at the description that comes to us in the second half of verse 27. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Now, I've never been demon-possessed. Unless something happened when I was a child, I'm not aware of ever being possessed by a demon. And what I mean by that is where an actual evil spirit, it was an angelic being that was created by God a long, long time ago, the devil, the main one, Lucifer, decided that he was going to run a rebellion against God. He wanted to be just like God. God said, I will share my throne with no one. He cast the devil and all of his minions his demonic, or his, his angels, he cast them down to earth and their, their fate has forever been sealed. They will not spend eternity with God. They will spend it in a place called hell, which was created for them. And the scripture tells us that the devil and all of his demons have one thought in mind and it goes over. It's a record that plays over and over again in their minds. They come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And they want to do that with anyone or anything that bears the image of God. And all people bear the image of God, regardless of race, religion, or creed. All people bear the image of God. We are made in his image and therefore are worthy of dignity and honor and respect. And so the devil hates all humans. And so he captures this particular man. Now, we don't know how he did that, don't know the deception that took place, but he enters into this man. And then another demon comes in and another demon comes in. And for quite some time, he was naked. He was exposed. He was ashamed. He was incapable of clothing himself. 
He could not do anything about his exposure because he was under the control of demonic forces. It says that he had not lived in a house. He was lonely. He was isolated. He was away. He was unloved. He was untouched. Probably the only physical contact he had with someone when he was wreaking havoc and destruction upon someone else. He's naked. He is not living in a home. But instead, he is living in a tomb. He spends his time with the dead. Now, whether we want to believe this or not, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, I'm telling you the truth. Biblically speaking, this is every person apart from Jesus. And while they may not have all the manifestations of being controlled or being possessed by, by the evils, I'm not saying the entire world is possessed by the devil and his, and his spirits. While they may not have the same expressions of that or may not have the same uh, tone of that or, or volume of that, Every person that is apart from Christ, from Christ is naked. They are exposed. They are ashamed and incapable of clothing themselves in righteousness. They cannot assuage their conscience. And they will try. They will try in all kinds of ways. And for years I tried what many folks have tried, and that is to ease my conscience through a bottle. Believing that somehow or another, if I could numb it for just long enough, it would, life would be tolerable. They are not in a home. They are not in a family, so to speak. There's not a spiritual family that provides love and care and tenderness, etc., because they have a father, according to Jesus, they have a father that is only after their destruction. And they are walking amongst the dead, the spiritually dead. This is every person who is apart from Christ. And I wonder how many folks that were here in this day and age had the opportunity to go to the man and to give to him this life-changing message that God has used over and over and over again throughout all of time about his goodness, his story that we just simply get across to others. I wonder how many had the opportunity to share but didn't share because all they could do was to see what was going on, on the outside. That is a naked dude. He stinks. He has no one that's around. There's a reason that no one is around him. And he lives in a grave. Do you really want to go to where dead people are? But Jesus is not like everyone else. So Jesus got off a boat and he ensured that he had an encounter with a man who was desperately needing someone to do for him what he could never do for himself. Can I ask you this? Do you, like M. Night Shyamalan in the sixth sense kind of a way, do you see dead people? Or do you see moral people and immoral people? What God calls us to see is dead people and alive people. And every dead person needs Jesus in order to come to life. 
If we can stop seeing moral and immoral, it is going to help us a tremendous amount in our mission. One of the pastors I used to serve under used to share an, an illustration very, very quick. He had an uncle that owned a uh, funeral business, and he said that his uncle from time to time would invite him over. And on one particular occasion, he happened to see a body that was just brought in. This individual had just passed away uh, within uh, the last three or four hours. And simultaneously, what was coming in at that same time was a body that they had pulled out of the woods they had been looking for for multiple days. And it was about the five-day mark that they found this body and brought it in. And he said, this person over here looked barely dead. And this person over here had the stench of death. Their body was beginning to decay. It was awful. And then the pastor would ask this question, now, which one of these two do you think is more dead? See, this one may smell worse and look worse and sound worse, but they both need life. Moral people who are relying upon their own morality to make themselves right with God need Jesus. They just don't stink as bad. Immoral people who are oftentimes trying to hide the pain in their life through all kinds of awful behavior need Jesus. And if we can see them the same way Jesus sees them, we're not going to have a hard time sharing his story with them. This is the condition of the man before he comes to Christ. In verses 30 through 34, it tells us how he comes to Christ. The demons in there recognize Jesus and they cry out to him in a loud voice, say, hey, you know, in essence, have mercy on us. They ask if they can actually go into a large herd of pigs. Now, if you want to talk about this afterwards, I'm happy to do it. If you're with PETA, then I'm happy to have a conversation with you and, and let you know that God values people more than he values pigs. But I do want to point out, Jesus is not responsible for the death of the pigs. The demons are. They ask for permission to go into pigs. Jesus, who values human life over animal life, says, yes, you can do that. And the demons choose to wreak the havoc and destruction. And in this phenomenal picture as to what's going to take place, the demons are going off of the ledge into imminent death, which is ultimately what is coming to them. They may be having a heyday right now, but that is coming to an end when Jesus returns. This man, <laughs> in verse 34, the herdsmen saw what happened and they fled and they told it in the city and into uh, the, the country. Now, beforehand, this guy had been breaking uh, bonds. He had superhuman strength, etc. But look at verse 35. The people went out to see what happened and they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. <laughs> Here is this guy who, who no one wanted anything to do with, and yet they come out to see who Jesus is because these folks had told them, hey, this dude just all of a sudden calls my pigs to go off a cliff. And so they're coming out, and, and obviously they want some answers, of course. And so they come to, to find where Jesus is, and there beside Jesus is the man whom Jesus has healed. Please hear this. There beside Jesus 
is the man whom Jesus had just healed. And while everyone else had gone away, Jesus was there. And I don't know what it is that you are facing currently in your life. I don't know what it is that you may have done publicly. I don't know what it is that you are so ashamed of, so embarrassed of, that you don't want anyone else to find out about. Everyone else may have left you. But I promise you, Jesus is with you. Jesus is capable of handling whatever level of shame you have. You cannot outsin the cross. So they find this man sitting there by Jesus. But look at his condition. He is now clothed. He is in his right mind. This man who once was naked and ashamed is now clothed, and he's clothed because of Jesus. It is Jesus' presence that has brought this on. We are not even told where these clothes came from. I don't know if Jesus all of a sudden magically made something happen, pulling a God card. I don't know if maybe he took one of those pigs and made some, some sort of covering. That, I don't know what Jesus does, but somehow or another, this dude is clothed. But I think what actually the writer is trying to get across to us is those who are near Jesus, who remain near Jesus, are clothed in his righteousness. And their shame is dealt with by him. And we have the mind of Christ we are new creations. It is a completely different person that is sitting now in the presence of Jesus than those who are apart from Jesus. Do you realize this is all of our story? You may have walked with God now for 40 plus years, but how well does your life go when you choose to walk away from Jesus for a little while and don't have fellowship with him? When you try to live life on your own, what does it look like? If your life looks anything like mine, it looks terrible. When I am not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is bringing to me the power of Jesus, the mind of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, when I am not doing that, I am one gnarly dude. And my family can tell you lickety split when I'm walking in the Spirit and when it's David that's showing up. What does your life look like? What difference does Christ make in your life? How do you interact with people differently because you walk with Jesus, because he has filled you? How has Jesus impacted your life? What examples of freedom can you share from your life? What have you been freed from and what have you been freed to? What examples of strength and courage and sacrifice and blessing do you have because of the work of Jesus in your heart? How has he made you more empathetic in your marriage or patient in parenting? Or when did he give you strength to forgive someone which freed you from the bitterness and resentment and freed you to experience compassion and empathy? Who has treated you with contempt and you have returned to them compassion? Who has been the recipient of a supernatural love when they did not deserve to be loved? What stories do you have about giving into your anger, but then going to the person whom you chewed out and humbling yourself and apologizing with genuine remorse over the hurt that you caused? 
How has the Holy Spirit changed your attitude slowly over the years or quickly overnight? How have you been freed from holding others to an unrealistic expectation and freed to being content in all circumstance? Where in your life is there no question that you have been changed by Jesus? This is your story. It's his story. The people responded wonderfully. They find out all that Jesus has done and they ask him to come and to lead a seminar for the next three weeks and And they're so excited that he's in their presence. Please hear me. Death that smells really good hates life just as much that death that smells really bad hates life. And when life is brought to death, no matter how good it smells, this is always going to hate life. So, of course, there was no excitement about Jesus being there. There was just fear. Get out of here. Are you telling me that we need you? You have the gall to tell me that I don't meet all the needs? Jesus, in verse 39, tells him, Return to your home and and declare how much God has done for you. Jesus sends him away with a very simple mission. Notice what Jesus does not send him away doing. Be prepared to give a reason why I am the Son of Man. I want you to be prepared to tell people the seven reasons why the resurrection that's about to happen is going to be historically accurate. I want you to be able to explain how it is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are actually three persons, but yet one God. Notice he doesn't ask him to do anything other than go tell your story. Tell how much God has done for you. Because nobody can argue with that. Trust that your story can be used by God. Trust that your story has power, not because it's your story, but because it's his story. Anytime that we point to the sufficiency of Christ and the insufficiency of ourselves, to the greatness of God and the lack of greatness in ourselves, anytime we do that, God gets the glory, he gets the honor, and your story becomes infinitely more powerful. I won't read it, but I'll just give you the the notes on this. In John chapter 4, there's three things that we would be able to see from that. You can study this later on. There's an invitation that takes place in verses 20 to 29. There's an investigation that takes place in 30. And there's a confirmation in verses 39 through 42. Invite people. Invite people to an investigation into the person of Christ. Invite people into an event in which... You're going to have godly people there. Anytime you can expose those who are outside the faith to God's people and God's word, God does incredible things in there. I want to close with giving you this, though, three thoughts on sharing your story and three thoughts on listening to other people's story. Three thoughts on sharing your story. Number one, talk about your life without Christ. 
Again, for some of you, that may have been that you came to faith when you were 35 and you want to talk about what life looked like for the first 34 years. But please do not neglect to talk about what life looks like now when you do not walk with Christ. For those of you that cannot remember a time in which you did not walk with him, share about what life looks like when you don't walk with him. When he is not in charge of your life, talk about the destruction and the havoc that you can wreak. What does life look like without Christ for you? Secondly, talk about coming to Christ. How was it that, did it that Christ bring you to himself? Was it adversity? Was it prosperity? Was it a friend? Was it a neighbor? Was it an event? Was it Billy Graham crusade? Was it a radio program? Whatever. It doesn't matter how it came about. How did you come to Christ? How did you come to believe that Jesus was exactly who he said he was and that you were willing to take a risk on this person, no matter how silly it may have seemed at the time? And then third, talk about your life with Christ. What kind of power does Christ have in your life? How does he enable you to do some things? You do realize that's not bragging, correct? Because you're talking about the work that God is doing in your heart. And you're saying, if he wasn't here, there's no chance that I would do this. Three quick thoughts on listening to other people's stories, because what we don't want to do is become one-way conversationalists, evidently. I'm out of time. <clears throat> we don't want to become one-way conversationalists, only us sharing the story. Three thoughts on listening to other people's stories. Number one, you want to ask them what are the challenges in their life, and you want to listen with sincere compassion and interest. What challenges do they face? Are there challenges at work? Are there challenges at home? Are there challenges with substances in their life? Are there challenges with other things? What challenges do you face? Secondly, ask them, how do you handle those challenges? How do you handle being divorced? How do you handle your kid running away? How do you handle the failure of a business? All the things that many of us face, many of us, the common things we have in life, how have you handled those challenges? And listen with genuine compassion and interest. And ask them in some sort of way, how have you found or have you rather found what it is that you are looking for in life? Have you found the peace, the contentment, the joy that you've been looking for and searching for? Now, there's not a trick here. There's not a, I'm going to listen to you and then I'm going to set you up so that I can really come in and share this. That's not what this is about. This is about talking and listening. This is about developing a relationship with an individual. And come back to the principle that we gave you last week. And after I hear someone's story, for me, Almost 99 out of 100, I'm going to do this. I'm going to say, I'm going to ask them about how they handle the challenges in life. I'm going to say, what role does faith play in your life? And they will typically give some sort of a response. If I think that they've been churched, I'll, I'll ask them, are you churched? And I'm just going to take a step in and I'm going to listen. If they're willing to get into a dialogue, a discussion in which we can share with one another, please hear me. My goal is not to convert them. It is not to change them. It is not to get them to think like I think or believe what I believe. My goal is simply to share what it is that God has done in my life and to find out if they are interested in something like that. And if they are, then we investigate. And if they aren't, we don't. 
I could share with you my story in less than a minute. I've practiced it so many times over the years, and in less than a minute, I can share with you what life was like before Christ or without Christ, how I met Christ, and then I can describe for you what life looked like, what life looks like with Christ. I can do that in 60 seconds. I would encourage you to get your story somehow they're condensed into less than five minutes. And if you can do that, you can be ready at any season, anywhere, at any time to give a reason for the hope that you have. Wildwood, many of us think that our story is just our story. But it's not. It's his story. So share it. 